1 Corinthians, and mainly for Wade, 1 Corinthians 13. Let's read together. One of the most famous passages in all the Scripture. The Apostle Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I might move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long. It's kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we pray now that by the power of your spirit, you would grant us ears to hear. We cannot accomplish anything of value in this time unless you enable that to happen. And so please, Lord, come and implant your word in our lives that we might receive it and understand it in such a way that we can live it for your glory and your honor and your praise. We are grateful to be a part of a family. And we are thankful for the opportunity to flourish in your kingdom. But Lord, we must understand who you are and what you have said to us in order to do so. So help us, we pray. We promise to give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, now a little disclaimer up front. First of all, we are not going to be going through 1 Corinthians 13 very fast. Because you can't go through it very fast. And the conversation we're about to have this morning is going to be a little shocking to some of you in the room. Uh, this is a truth that a lot of people that have grown up in church do not understand, okay? And so uh, my goal this morning is not so that when we leave here, you have a completely firm grip and understanding on everything that we're talking about. Uh, I hope that's the case, but recognize that we will then next week take the next piece and it will build and it will come together. I also want you to realize that as we're having this conversation, you will understand that everything that I've said for the last two months has been leading up to 1 Corinthians 13 and giving the, the, the what the Holy Spirit has wanted to do is just... Uh, set a context within us so that we could have the conversations that we need to have around this very, very important place in Scripture. And in particular, I just feel an overwhelming burden that this is something that we need to understand as a fellowship. So, with that being said... You're listening, guys. We're going to set the tone with this understanding that you can be talented and appear successful in ministry without 
God. There are people in the context of Christianity. There are people in, in churches, no doubt in this church, who uh, do things and uh, look very talented at doing those things and appear to be very successful in the doing of those things. And I promise you there is a tremendous amount of confusion about this issue. Look, verse 1 again. The Apostle Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or clanging cymbals. I, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could move mountains or remove mountains, but not have love, I have nothing. Look at, the, look at the grandiose language that the Apostle Paul is using here to drive this point home. Now, here's what most people don't realize, is that 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, and that's why you'll oftentimes uh, hear me use that, uh, read this in the context of a wedding ceremony or something like that. It's, it's incredibly beautiful, but what most people don't realize is that this is a shocking rebuke to the people in Corinth. This is like a slap in the face to the church. And it should be a shocking jolt to me and you this morning. This is not, these are amazing words, but they're not for our comfort. They're for our conviction. So let me just break a few things down for you. Now, you know I've been telling you that you're going to have to be patient, but we're going to get into all the conversations about spiritual gifts and so on and so forth when we get to chapter 14. But we're not there, so, but we do need to... I want you to see some of the, the magnitude of what the Apostle Paul is, is saying. For example, he says, though I speak with tongues of men. So the word tongues, that word is glossa or glossolalia in the Greek, and it's, it means a language or a dialect. So it is a known language used by a particular people distinct from other nations. And so, so what he's saying is, though you might be able to speak a language that you don't know how to speak. So that is a tremendous spiritual manifestation. If suddenly I'm up here speaking and people in who speak other languages can understand what I'm saying and I don't even speak the language that they understand. Now, why? Why would, I mean, why is this even going on in the first place? And why is this, uh, what is the context of all this? Well, first of all, as these miraculous gifts are taking place in the Scripture, understand they are a, a uh, there's something to authenticate the, the message to unbelievers. You see, when unbelievers are, are standing around at Pentecost and they hear, they hear people speaking in languages they don't know, they realize that this is something unbelievable and that God is probably in the midst of it. But more than that, I think, the other reason would be so that each member of the church 
no matter what their background, no matter where they come from, would know that they received the same Spirit. Because if you read 1 Corinthians, especially starting in 12 and come all the way through 14, the amount of times Paul says same Spirit is shocking. Because it's very important to God that everybody in the kingdom of God understand that they've received the same spirit in the same way and that we are all equal in God's eyes. Very important. So this is the reason behind this. So what, I'm, what I want you to realize this morning is I want you to realize what a gift. What a gift from God that he would go to such lengths to make sure that everybody understood uh, clearly, and that we'd all received the same spirit, and there wasn't, there wasn't, uh, th- there's not, you know, varsity and junior varsity in the kingdom of God or in the family of God. It doesn't work like that. Right. Remember last week I started talking about how uh, the problem in the church in Corinth is that there was gift envy. Well, of course, there's gift envy. If there's human beings involved in something, it's gonna then there's gonna be. We're going to turn anything into a competition. We're going to pervert it, twist it around, start competing with each other. And so, of course, there is. So when he says tongues of men or angels, you're thinking, now, what is, what is angel language? What is that? Well, that isn't something. There's absolutely nowhere in the Bible where it speaks about the language of angels. But what is Paul talking about? He, what you see here is how far gift envy has gone so they're so consumed with trying to be more gifted than other people. Things have gotten so wacky and out of hand that some people are claiming to be able to speak the language of angels. Remember a few weeks ago in our text, Paul said that you can't say that Jesus is accursed and be in the Spirit. In other words, so when you read that, you go, Who would do that? It's just trying to get us to see how jacked up this church is. People were doing that. There was crazy things going on. And look at verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, wouldn't that be a good thing? Wouldn't it be good if somebody was giving all their stuff away or was so generous, so sacrificial that their life was, they were suffering because of their giving? Well, maybe, but maybe not. You see, the point Paul is making here is that giving for gain equals a goose egg. Zippo. Nada. It profits me nothing. The sheer act of generosity in and of itself is of zero profit. You're going to have to think with me this morning because you're going to get tangled. Zero profit. Matthew chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. 
You see, what Paul's driving at is he, he's using this grandiose language to show these great acts. I mean, people who have, have all knowledge and all wisdom, they're, they're prophesying, they're, they're speaking truth into people's lives with all knowledge and all wisdom, zero, zero. Then the last part is, though, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So this would be, people get all tangled up about this, you know, and say all sorts of crazy things. It's very clear what this is about. This is about martyrdom. Who would give, your, who would, who would give their body to be burned? What is, is, well, I don't know, let's think for five seconds. People who fly planes into buildings. There's a great example. And what do you think it profits them? Zip. But why do they do it? What's the motivation for flying a plane full of people into a building? Because they believe a man-made doctrine written in the Quran that tells them if they do that, they will receive a reward. They're doing that for selfish gain. And what is the reward? 72 virgins waiting for you in paradise. So some of you should be asking this question. Hmm. No wonder there's not very many female suicide bombers. And if you just want extra proof that the Quran is written by man, what does the Quran say is the reward? There, are, there have been some female suicide bombers. And what does the Quran say? You better brace yourself for this. What does the Quran say is the reward for a female suicide bomber? When she gets to paradise, this is why they don't do this. Her husband is there. Now, you know that when a man was writing the Koran, he did not ask his wife for input on this. I mean, she's like, hold up, you want me to strap a bomb on my back, and you want me to go in there and blow myself up, and what I'm going to get is my husband? Oh, heck no, I ain't doing that. I mean, I was thinking, you know, like, when you get to paradise, dishes never get dirty, laundry never needs doing, you know. Maybe your husband comes back as your servant, then we'd be in trouble. But that, that's not how that goes. So anyway, I get sidetracked. But. So, so this, is, this is the heart of, of what these first few verses of 1 Corinthians 13 are telling us. That the heart of service is just as important as the act of service. Now, oftentimes, what I say is that 
the heart of service is more important than the act of service. And, and oftentimes it is. But it's, it, it's really not fair to say that in this context because sometimes God uses the act of service. But when it comes to the person doing the service, it is 100%, 100% more important, the heart behind it, than the act you're doing. Now, why? Well, it's simple. You see, what Paul's driving at here is that if love doesn't inform our actions, then it is all for nothing. It's for nothing. And this is, uh, this is a tricky thing to really understand. I mean, it, I was probably 10 years into ministry thereabouts before I fully understood what I'm going to teach you this morning. And it was a process, and it was a very sort of soul-shaping and flesh-shattering uh, realization. You see, in the kingdom of God, it's not all about the, the, the talent and the things that we can do and produce with our hand as much as it is about the, the contents and the, the motivations of our heart. It's, and we, so far, everything I've said is, is not new information to anybody. But here's the thing. Just in this surface conversation, what this is really talking about is, is going to be missed. Because there is so many potholes along this path. So many ways to get this mistaken. You see, whenever people, listen, this is true everywhere, in every church, all over the place, all the time. Whenever people in a church are helpful and impactful and useful, we immediately equate that with being spiritual. That's wrong. It's wrong. I'm not saying that it's not helpful. I'm not saying that it's not impactful. But you can't just assume that it's spiritual. Now, now listen. God's use of a vessel validates God, not the vessel. This is not a conversation that most people ever have. And yet it is a very, very important thing to understand as you're operating. Because listen, I know where this is going and I know what God's going to say to us, you know, in the weeks to come. And if you don't get this, you're going to get off in trouble and you're going to end up you're going to end up being a Corinthian. You're going to end up doing the exact thing, making the exact mistake that we're trying to avoid. See, 
You can't mistake the operation of gifts for grace. You can't do that. You just can't do it. Now, you, you can write down somewhere on your handout, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. That's where you're going to find the fruit of the Spirit. Now, that passage, that whole passage about uh, the Spirit and the flesh are contrary to one another, and it lists out what the, the evidences of the Spirit are. Love is always first, then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And what the Bible does is tells us what the, fruit of the, the fruits of the flesh are. And then it says that although these are contrary, when a person operates in the power of the Spirit, the flesh cannot operate. It cannot operate. But you can operate in spiritual giftedness and the flesh run rampant. This is what you got to understand. Be very, very careful to understand the danger that gifts will disguise themselves as fruit. So when you're reading passages of Scripture, I'm going to show you some, but, but it's all over the New Testament, that when you're reading the Bible, so many things... Like on the surface, you, they go, okay, I get this, I understand this, but, but what is really going on? What's really going on? So, for example, here's a passage from Matthew chapter 7. I've referenced this all the time. Many will say to me in that day, so if they'll stand before God, Lord, Lord, have we not? And then notice again, prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name. They're doing miraculous works in God's name. They're not going around uh, promoting Satanism. They're doing this in the name of God. And Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is the operation of spiritual giftedness. These are gifts. These are in the name of God. So when, when, you're, when you're reading in the Old Testament, for example, and so you're, it's, a, it's a different context, it's the Old Covenant, and it's not the New Covenant, but everything there is written for our edification, and it's teaching us things to prepare us for what's coming when you get to the New Covenant. So when you're reading, uh, remember a few years ago, I, uh, on Wednesday night, I preached through the book of Numbers. And I remember when we got to chapter 22 and, and I started teaching on Balaam, the shock of so many people who were just completely misinformed about what that text is about. And here's Balaam, a, a sorcerer that God uses 
to speak for him. He gives him the, the gift of prophecy. He gives him the ability to speak as a prophet on behalf of God. And yet when you get to the New Testament, Peter, Jude, and John in the book of Revelation all tell us that he was a promoter of wickedness. But, he was, but God used him as a prophet for his purposes. The same thing happened. If you remember when we were, uh, we did a series on Wednesday night, a few, it's probably been maybe a couple years ago, on the life of David. And I remember uh, when Pastor Matt preached a sermon about Saul. And what you see in the life of Saul is God using a person who has an unredeemed heart. But God's using him for a purpose. And, and that's there for us to realize something. We need to realize that this is a reality. So that when we get to the New Testament, things don't change. They just elevate. It becomes more in our face, more right there before us. You know, where we're, we come squarely into the reality of Judas and his calling. He was called just like all the other ones. God knew everything that was going to happen, yet God called him. And everything that Jesus did in the life of the disciples, he did in Ju Judas' life. I mean, you gotta, you got to think about like Luke chapter 9, this passage of Scripture where Jesus calls the 12 disciples together and he gives them power and authority over demons to cure diseases. He sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. There, and it doesn't come back and say, everyone was successful except for Judas. It doesn't come back and say, well, you know, these six were better than, than and, you know, and here's the pecking order. No, they were all wildly and equally successful. What is God trying to teach us? Beware of giftedness. You got to understand giftedness or you're going to get yourself in some trouble. Spiritual gifts can operate and function in an unredeemed life. No problem. No problem. Spiritual fruit can only operate in a redeemed life. Only. Only. So, what are the evidences of salvation? Never giftedness. Never giftedness. Giftedness never gives evidence of conversion. This is such a huge problem. Because people who have very obvious gifts oftentimes operate and everyone gives them a pass because they're gifted and yet there's no fruit. They're not spiritual. Listen, this, do you know why this is? Because there has to be a good reason for this, right? Why would God make it this way? Why doesn't God just make gifts operate like fruit? Wouldn't that be easy? Well, sure, that would be easy. That would be horrible. It would be easy, but it would be horrible. 
your life would be miserable. This world would be miserable. We would have a really hard time, if that were the case, uh, singing songs to God of gratitude for His grace and His mercy and His I mean, no, I mean, it, it, because the world in which we lived in would be so void of almost anything enjoyable at all. Think about it. What if God only gave gifts to Christians? Hmm? What kind of world would we live in? What kind of world would this be? If it was impossible for an unbeliever to, to be a loving parent or a faithful spouse. You see, we live in a world where God has richly gifted his blessings across all of humanity for our good and a blessing. You know, there, there's a lot of people who aren't Christians who bless us and edify our lives what if only christians had the gift to be artistic what if only christians had the gift to be musical what if only christians had the gift to be creative what if only you see what i'm saying what world would we live in but and what would it tell us about god you see god gives his gifts to the world and he, he allows believers, and listen, when, when, when I watch sports on TV, what am I watching? Giftedness. They don't know God from a hole in the ground. But he's the one that gave them the ability to do what they're doing, that we're enjoying. Don't you see that? But if only Christians could run faster, jump higher, do... We, what a bizarre world this would be. And what would that create? It would create an economy on earth where there would be a, a terrible funnel of people who, who would just be pressed to only want God for what they would receive. We already have a huge problem with that now, right? But what if only Christians were gifted? How long do you think it would take the rest of the world to figure out, hold on a second. I need to go to church. You see, God doesn't want that. I don't want that, and you don't want that. Yes, I want them to go to church, but I don't want them to, I don't, I don't want to live in a world where everybody's just trying to get something from God. We got enough problems now. It would be like the whole world was ruled by Joel Osteen. All right, let's move on. See, the Bible says in James chapter 1 that every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Do you think that verse means only things in the context of the church? No. It's every gift. It's every gift. Think of all the gifts that God gives people who don't know him. 
that sustain and bless so many other people. You see, when you, when you start thinking about this, and you, you really start realizing God is so amazing that, that He gives all across history in the, in the middle of nowhere in some village where, where Jesus hasn't been preached yet, but God gives a, a gift to somebody to figure out how to, how to farm a certain way or how to, how to harvest a certain way or how to, to, to feed multitudes of people. And, and listen, then that person never comes to faith in him. But look at the result of what God does. And maybe, but you see, God is, is, is a good and gracious God. And he's very, he's very generous with, with giftedness. The problem is we get it all tangled up. You see, there is nothing in this world that's truly good that didn't come from above. And there's a lot of things that don't happen in here amongst just us in this world that are really good. And they're gifts from God. And so we need to understand that when we start having conversations about spiritual giftedness. Now, if you weren't in here on Wednesday night, which a lot of you were serving in various areas, you might want to go back and listen to the, you should listen to the whole entire trade series. But we finished it, and I pulled all that together. But understand that all of those traits are so important in understanding this. That because when you're, when you're, if you're struggling with figuring out, you know, if you're struggling with figuring out the, the fruit of the Spirit, and what does that look like in my life, and what does that look like in, in the lives around me, and you need to understand what Christ-like character looks like because that's what fruit is. See, Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, that I have all faith, I can remove mountains, but I am nothing, nothing. So he takes the Corinthians' twisted view of giftedness because they were, these are the things they were all wound up in. These are the things that they put people that had these gifts up on pedestals. And he says, if you had those gifts to the nth degree, to, in absolute perfection, you would be zero. You would have nothing if they weren't in the context of fruit, of love. That's what, that's what he's saying. See, Gifts without grace make love conditional. They pervert love. And this is why Paul's using love. This is why love is always the first of the fruit of the Spirit. See, we know that a conditional love can never save. It can't save. Now, what does that mean? Because God's love is never conditional. So, so clearly that means on our part, right? So what would that look like? What would, it, what, would, 
What would us trying to make a conditional love, a saving love, look like? It would look like us coming to God and saying, God, I want to be saved. I want to be your child. I want to be in your kingdom. I want to be this. I want to be that. Because you want something from God. You can't get saved that way. There's no salvation in conditional love. The only way a person can be born again is when they repent of their sin and they come to God wanting God. That's the only way you can be saved. Which is why there's so many Christian people in Christian churches who are in for a great shock when they stand before God. This is why the gate is so narrow. Because think of all the people who come to God on a conditional basis. Maybe even subconsciously coming to God, but, but if, if God would do this, you know, if God would ever allow this to happen or if God would do that, I couldn't follow a God like that. Well, you're out. You don't get to determine who God is. You don't get to put parameters on what God does. That's not our, our place. You either come to God for God or you are apart from him. That's the only way it can be. You cannot have conditional love. It won't save. So here we are. We're gifted. We can teach. We can counsel people and give them good advice. We like to help people and do things for other people. But 30 years is a long time. It's a long time to be in one place, in one church. You see a lot of things. I've seen a lot of gifted people. But you know what? Their feelings are always hurt. They're doing things. They're, they're, they're a gifted teacher. Everybody in there who, who goes to their thing or comes to their class, you know, is like, oh, they're such a good, but their feelings are always hurt. They help people. They're always serving other people. There's some of you in this room right now. You're always serving other people, but your personal relationships are marred by strife. And I even hear people say, oh, they're such a blessing. They're so, what an amazing Christian person they are. Strife. Always worried about what other people are doing. 
You see, it's hard. Evidence of gifts, lack of the Spirit. The question is, before you ever, ever start embarking on your giftedness or getting whatever you're using now, the question is not what are you doing, who are you impacting, the question is, are you a joyful person? Are you? I don't mean just fake and goofy joyful. I mean, are you a person who is characterized by joy? Are you faithful? Think about, think about all the gifted people I've seen over the years that aren't faithful. Some of you in this room are very gifted and you're not faithful. You know who you are. Self-control. You just lack self-control. You might be able to do this and do that. You're really good at this and really good at that, but you have no self-control. What is your motivation for using your gifts? Remember, when we embarked on this conversation, we, we talked in depth about how the Bible is crystal clear. All spiritual gifts are for the edification of others. So why are you using your gifts? And the more gifted you are at something, the more dangerous it can become. Because the more you then receive for that gift, the more the temptation is to start using the gift for what it does for you. Then there's the other side of the coin. There's some of you in this room who you don't think you're a very good Christian at all. And you don't do anything because you don't feel like you're good at anything. And you look around at other people and you just get out of the way and you say, well, you know, they're... But that's a terrible mistake as well. If the Spirit of God is within you, if you're operating and in, in the fruit of that Spirit is evidence in your life, then you've got to step out in faith and believe what the Bible says is true. See, this is what I want you to understand. Gifts are limited. There's some things I'm really good at and there's some things I stink at. They're limited. And I don't really know for what duration and to what degree my gifts will operate. See, that's the thing about gifts that are a little shaky. Is that I can't, 
I have no guarantee that my gifting yesterday is going to be my gifting today. It can vanish at any moment. Gifting is limited. Fruit is unlimited. It's unlimited. What the Spirit of God does inside of a child of God is unlimited. See, you, if you're saved, you have unlimited potential to love. You have unlimited potential to be patient and to be kind and to be faithful. Unlimited potential in all of those things. And you say, my goodness, why don't we all do that? Because no one is patting you on the back for fruit. That's why. Think about Jesus. He shows up on the scene and he's doing miracles. And he's, every time he speaks, people are are amazed by what he says and crowds are swarming around him. But yet none of those things transformed anybody. When Matt prayed, what did he say? It's the kindness of God. It's the love of God that transforms us. All, all of God, all of Jesus' giftedness did not transform anyone. His love does. You see, it's his character. It's the fruit of the Spirit evidenced in Him. That's what transforms people. That's why the Bible says in 1 John that God is love. Do you know, think about it. We just go, yeah, God is love. Hey, listen, God's a lot. The Bible doesn't say God is miraculous. God is, God's a great speaker. God can raise the dead. God can, it doesn't say that. You know what it says? God is what? He's love because that's what transforms. He can do all these other things, but that's not the main thing. So that's why the Bible comes along and says these very common words that we don't get the gravity of. Paul says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life or angels or powers or principalities or things present or things to come or height or depth nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Not from the power of God, not of the gifts of God, not of the abilities of God. The one thing you never want to be separated from is the love of God of God. But we we fall into this ditch so often. Jesus came to this earth not to show us how powerful he is. Not to exhibit all the things he could do. It's just not why he came. He, he left heaven and came here because he loves us. Love motivated him. And what devastates him? What devastates Jesus? What is the most devastating statement? What does Jesus say in his moment of utter devastation? He says, 
Father, why have you forsaken me? It's the, it's the breaking of the bond of love that rips his heart to pieces because of all the things of Jesus, the thing that is most precious is the love that he shares with his Father because love is the essence of who he is. And it should be the essence of who we are. See, he didn't come here for, because of his justice. He didn't come here because of his holiness. He didn't come here because of his righteousness. All those things are true, but that's not why he came. He came because of his love. See, love, it's the motivator. It's the motivator for us. Love is the equipper. Love is the generator. And love is the reward. Listen. We are not here to produce fruit. We are here to produce good fruit. The Bible makes it clear there are trees that produce fruit, but it's bad fruit. The Holy Spirit saying to this room this morning, not are you producing fruit. What kind of fruit are you producing? Is the Spirit of God evident in your life? Love, peace, joy, kindness, patience, long-suffering. Are, are these the things that mark who you are? Love is the necessary ingredient in any spiritual activity in our lives. Any. Any. You see, it's not, am I producing fruit? It's, is the fruit that I'm producing nourishing? Is it coming out of a life that's nourished by the Spirit of God? Hear what the Lord is speaking. Let's stand and bow our heads.